0: Good morning, Fondren Church. Good morning, Robert. Thank you. Just want to begin by thanking you. Um, summers, just to give you a glimpse, um, summers can be tough times for churches, uh, attendance, giving, all that stuff. And I just think we've had a we've had a real good summer. And add on top of the uh, the, the challenge of summertime, of course, is the transition uh, geographically proximity wise it's been a small one but in some ways it's been very large to take still kind of a new church and to displace us across the parking lot and to not be able to get in here until just a few minutes before church but you guys have been so great I just want to thank you there's been little grumbling and complaining and so much positivity so just want to thank you for that and appreciate you Um, here's the announcement we teased on social media but we want to let you know that this is it in the gym now, we're not going to get sentimental and cry like we did in Dueling Hall, okay? Because this was just been seven weeks that we just wanted to get through, and Dueling Hall was the beginning of Fondra Church. It was you know two and a half years, and, uh, but, but today is our last day in here. Next Sunday, August the 10th, the worship center will be ready for us, and I know you're excited about that. You can clap. It's an amazing miracle. Some of you are clapping, but you doubted, right? When we told you seven weeks, you're thinking, yeah, I know those construction companies, it's gonna take a a lot longer than that. But man, it's been cool, June 22nd, 29th, and July 6th, 13th, 20th, 27th, and now today, August the 3rd, uh, seven weeks in here, and then we're going back into our home, our permanent home, Uh, how great is that? We wanna thank FC, uh, Fountain Construction, for doing work on FC. We're just grateful for those guys. They've done a good deal. Some of you have gone in to look, and this week, Monday through Thursday, they'll be laying down carpet and doing some trim. Uh, the, the coffee area and all won't be ready next Sunday. It'll be passable. Uh, there's not going to be doors on a couple of the bathrooms, but I told the construction guys in a meeting this week, hey, that's the kind of church we want to be. <laughs> we're, just, we're just real transparent. you know. When someone says, do you know so-and-so, we can go, oh, yeah, we know them very well at our church. But we might have a doorman there, maybe some sort of blockage or something to keep people from looking at you or whatever but uh we're excited and um we just learned kind of on a, a downer we did learn uh, late yesterday that there's been a little bit of damage to the pipe organ in that beautiful church i don't know if jesus heals pipe organs uh or if the insurance company has to get involved in this with the construction company but pray for that and pray for goodwill uh to continue with these churches we've been uh flexible with each other and it's just gone so well so uh kudos um and just praises to our God in heaven for, uh, for this summer. And we are looking forward to our college students coming back in the next couple of weeks and just getting into our home. Just so so pumped about that and what awaits. Only God knows, but we have a sense of uh, just how he wants to use our church, and we're, we're super pumped about that. Uh, If you're into sociology, it's an interesting time to study human relationships. Connectivity has never been easy. It doesn't require much depth. You can let the whole world know the most worthless, useless, needless information about your life. You can take a picture of that sampler at Applebee's and send it to your friends uh, and let them uh, be jealous of your potato skins. It's just easy in this world uh, to be connected. But today I want to ask us in this God of Yes series to to consider how we do think um, of our relationships, how we define community. In fact, I think it's the central gift that our God wants the church to give to the world. Now, this whole series, these many weeks, we've been flowing out of 2 Corinthians one twenty. A lot of you know this by now, where it says in this passage that all the promises of God in him find their yes. We're looking at the God of yes, and we've looked at some big themes, creation. And the cross and how the, the great love and sacrifice of our Savior, how it led to God being our counselor. He didn't just die for us, but he wants us to die with him, Galatians 2.20. And be buried and raised to walk in newness of life and to know him as our counselor, as our God, as a God who speaks to us. And we looked last week about being on mission, the great promise that most of us have heard uh, many times about go into all the world. And Jesus gives this promise, lo, I am with you. We experience his presence as we live On mission, And over the next uh, couple of weeks, today and next week, we're going to hone in on this idea of community. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16 that uh, I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail. And when we look at what sociologists are discovering, what those who study human relationships are revealing, we are the most connected uh, society ever. You can be connected with more people easier and in more ways than ever before. But yet those same experts tell us, not necessarily religious people, by the way, but they say that at the same time that we have this heightened level of connectivity, that we're also uh, the most unknown and most alone that we've ever been, ever felt. Now, church, let's consider what is uh, our basis for community. You see, I think we try to build a foundation of relationships, I know I have, on maybe something faulty, maybe something that's transient, that lacks permanence. I think one of the things we do is we look for compatibility, but compatibility, it changes over time. Have you noticed when Susan and I first got married, we had a lot of single friends and we had married friends and we would have people call us at you know, nine o'clock at night and say, hey, you wanna go out, let's have fun. And we would always say yes. You know how extroverted we are, right? Yeah, nine o'clock, let's go out. And we would, we would go out we'd come in at 2 a.m. Uh, having painted the town and had a big time. We'd wake up at 11 the next day. That's just where we were in life. And then we had our only begotten son and, at the time. And we would have some of those same friends call us at nine o'clock and say, you wanna go out tonight? And we would say, no, you wanna come over. You want to come over about 5.30 and leave at 8, right? And they would say, oh, man, you know, single folks don't get it in China. Folks without kids, they, they would say, get a sitter, right? Get a sitter. And we're thinking, yeah, we could get a sitter. We did that sometimes. But that sitter, if we come in at 2 a.m., that sitter's not going to come back at 6 a.m. when we hear that voice crying in the room next door, right? That little baby with its lungs. That was just the stage of life. Uh, that we were in and we didn't have any conflict where we lost friends we just had some compatibility that we noticed that was changing uh, we can build our compatibility on a hobby or a point of interest uh, one of our young deacons one of my good friends he's a neighbor Nick Crawford we've uh, run together some Nick is a a fit young guy he's an he's an athlete he played college baseball I I, I didn't I wasn't much of an athlete my career ended in like fifth grade a, a terrible cub scouts injury but we run together, Nick and I, and he's being gracious when he runs with me because this old body's starting to wear out. Nick's fit as a fiddle. He, he double steps when we run. He's just being nice. But some of us have hobbies where we do things like that, and it's just hard to, to find uh, compatibility in, in life, isn't it? And there's a stage of life. There's hobbies. There's our stories. This is pertinent to the church. Have you noticed that some people's stories are different than your stories? I mean, I know people, man, they were virtually born in the church. I mean, they, they just almost never left. Born there, raised there. That, man, that, that's their background. And I know some people, man, they, they were saved straight out of thug life. And now I've never, you know, Woken up in the back of an El Camino with tattoos discovered on my body. Never had that happen. Never blackened out by a coke binge. Never had a crystal meth lab or anything like that. That's just not my story. I, I can't relate to that in my past. Now, I can celebrate the grace of God in that. But when we try to build relationships based on people that are just like us, it can, be, it can fall short. It, it can be less than what God intends it. And we look for points of interest, for compatibility, for, for hobbies, for stories, for, hey, I can relate to that. But all of that is not, as, is not as deep as Jesus wants it to be. I'd like for you to turn this morning to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at some, a few verses, verses 9 through 13 in Romans 12. And for 11 chapters, Paul is talking about how great Christ is, um, the issue of the human condition, that thing called sin. He confesses what a wretched man I am, the things that I wanna do, I don't, the things that I don't wanna do, I do those things. He talks about how we don't have any more condemnation, how we've been raised to walk, I mentioned it a minute ago, we've been raised to walk in newness of life. And in these verses, he tells us how we ought to live in light of what's true about you. There's this call that, that the Christian community should live for. Here it is, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Beautiful scripture. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Let love be sincere. Some of your versions say let love be genuine or uh, more render it this way. Let love be without hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, Jesus wages war on this reality uh, inside of us. The actors among us, the deceivers within us. He wages war on hypocrisy. Now, sometimes we like to think of Jesus more like Mr. Rogers. But in Matthew 23, he's more like Rambo. And he comes after these people. Now, he has harsh words. Now, when you think, well, Jesus had harsh words for people in any gospel narrative, you would probably think it's for uh, slimy sex offenders or for greedy CEOs or for shady politicians. But his harsh words were directed toward religious hypocrites. And here's what Matthew 23, 1 through 3 says. We get a common phrase from this that we use almost every day. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, he's talking to everybody here, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. We all use that expression, don't we? So-and-so, they don't practice what they preach. That's sort of the moniker given that captures a hypocrite. And Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 23 that these people, they do their works of righteousness to be seen by other people. He mentions several things. He says they like the the places of honor at the table. They want the best seats in the synagogue. They like to be greeted in the marketplace. They want to be called rabbi. They want to be seen by other people. When we talk about the gospel setting us free, I want to say this this morning. Jesus sets you and I free from religious hypocrisy. We, we need a community where we can get together. We can be sincere in our love for one another. We can share our struggles and our strengths, all knowing that we're all on the road to sanctification. Delve deeper in your thinking with me for a moment. I've been thinking, why is this such a recurrent emphasis? Why is this one of those things we just don't get? Why the pretending and why the posturing? Why is it that when we come to church, we think it's about conformity and we think, okay, I got to act the part and look the part. I need to know when to stand and when to raise my hands or not. I need to know the, the lines to say, the Christianese, the Christian cliches, the religious jargon, the slogans, all the sayings. We, we, we get caught up if we're not careful. And just as we can be conformed to the world, according to Romans 12, the first couple of verses, we can be conformed to a religious hypocrisy of acting the parts. You know, there's an expression, um, so-and-so is living their lives in a fishbowl. And that's always used probably negatively. People are watching. But you take that and put a spin on it. I was doing that this week thinking, you know, a fish, a pet fish in, a, in an aquarium, it, that fish lives its life in open transparency. Glass, water, lights. You can see it all. And so many other animals, like take a cat, for instance. Y'all know how I feel about cats how Jesus and I feel about cats. But they, they live, they're under the bed and where it's dark and stuff, where hairballs live and stuff. or they, they hide in closets in dark places. There's so many animals that they prefer a nest or a burrow or something like that where they hide in darkness. They've got a dark place. And I think that fishbowl for us is, is an aspirational idea for the church, to, for us to live in community. Glass and water and light. To be open. Why is it? And here's what I'm saying. Maybe I hadn't been clear, but what you and I have in common, because some of us have been saved from rebellion. You got that tattoo on spring. You woke up and you got that tattoo on spring break. You brought it to church with you, but you got that tattoo. You were saved from rebellion. Some of us have been saved from religion. But all of us have this in common. We've been saved. And we need a Savior. Why then? Why then? Do we expend so much effort in not being who we really are? Sharing our strengths, sharing our struggles, knowing that we're all on the road to sanctification. Let your love be sincere. What we're saying today is what you've heard for Christian community to be gospel centered, for it to honor Christ. If we're going to be the church that we need to be, then we need to let our love be sincere. We, We need to root out hypocrisy, starting with us. Yes, yes, Jesus would teach in Matthew 23, there are actors among us, but there are deceivers within us. And who's got that deceiver? You do. And I do. We need safe environments. How many of you just nod your head, you feel like you would grow more in Christ if you, if you had a safe environment where you could really be who you are? You wouldn't have to pretend, right? We need safe environments, but Paul is saying here that we need to be safe in Christian community, but not soft. Look at the very next line. He says, abhor what is evil. Listen to me, church. That word abhor, it's rendered this. In our, in our language, it would be rendered this, to shudder in horror. To shudder and horror. There's something about it that just brings this healthy and holy fear. It's us not dismissing sin. It's us seeing sin as God wants us to see it. How does God see it? He abhors it. Abhors sin. And so the church walks in this tension. And it will always be a tension this side of heaven. On one hand, we confess sin. On the other, we combat sin. On one hand, we welcome and receive sinners. And on the other, we do all we can to call people to righteousness. We embrace ourselves and others in the midst of our brokenness while we guide them and ourselves towards wholeness. Do you see that tension? And I think where we fall, and here, here's what I just want to say, church. I find it now dreadfully boring, and I'm older than a lot of you, but I find it dreadfully boring. In fact, it's not the Christian community that I want to be a part of when we sit in circles and everybody just kind of shares a, well, nobody's perfect sort of mantra. Yeah, nobody's perfect, and we dismiss it. But how are we coming around each other to help each other grow? Look what Paul said in Romans 6, just six chapters prior to this. Uh, what shall we say then? Are we continuing to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? For us to be a healthy, true gospel-centered community, We say that we're safe and we create safe places. I hope you have that in in your, your marriage if you're single in your roommate or friends. I hope you have a safe place, an outlet where you can go and really be who you are. I'm learning that every time I share an ugly part of my life with someone that I trust, that it's a beautiful thing it it hurts my reputation a little bit in the moment but it brings me more into that fishbowl that healthy fishbowl that glass and water and light and less away from that den or that nest or that burrow of hiding but to abhor sin is to say hey we don't want to continue in it we we don't want to we want to help each other take steps and it is. You say, well, Robert, how do you do that? I mean, how do you do it? If you go one side in combating sin, you become harsh and judgmental like the very people that Jesus warns against. You put a load on people that they cannot bear. But if you go too far this way, it's just safe. Then nobody gets better. Then we're just all talking about the grace of God and nobody's being transformed. And I think there's something deep in our hearts. You sit here today and you, your life is like mine. It needs to be transformed. There are things in me that need to change. And I think one of the reasons I am a pastor, one of the reasons I preach this word called the gospel, and I believe with all my being resoundingly that it's good news is I've seen Jesus and I'm seeing Jesus change my life. I'm not the guy that I used to be. Some of you know me, you're around me, and you think, man, I wish you would improve. I wish you would get better in this. I'm telling you, I'm not the guy that I used to be. And it's dreadfully boring to to be a church, to be a group, to be a circle of friends if we're not having a safe place to confess our sins, but also not be in a soft place where we don't combat that sin. Paul says, let your love be sincere, genuine, free of hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Notice what he says. By the way, let me say, when we talk about abhorring what is evil, I think that is also giving us an opportunity and a platform to speak into each other's lives. To be able to say, hey, here's something. Have you thought about this? Here's something that I see in you. But the goal is not to just be a whistleblower, to be like, hey, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's another thing. Let me tell you about this sin. Some of you have a tendency to be that way. But Paul's saying, abhor what is evil. Let's combat sin. Let's experience the grace of God and transformation in our walks with him. But let's also do what? Let's hold fast. To what is good, Hebrews 10 24 and 25 let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves let us gather together let us make it a regular occurrence in our lives let's don't forsake that why, why did the writer of Hebrews say that because the early church in the midst of their persecution and all they knew they needed each other and then the first hint of prosperity and progression they start thinking well maybe maybe not so much And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves. Let's, Let's be together and let's provoke one another, Hebrews 10, 25. Let's provoke one another to love and good deeds. Do you have a provoker? A provocateur? Someone that does do that very thing to love and good deeds? Here's what it says in Proverbs. The mouth of the righteous is what? It's a fountain of life. It's a fountain of life. I was looking at my journal this week several years ago. I wrote um, something along the following. I wrote that I want to be a life giver. I want to give people life in my relationships. I want to point out the good work that God is doing in them. I want to invite them in. And I want to encourage them to be bold and brave in areas where they're timid. Let us hold fast to what is good. And next, Paul talks about loving one another with a brotherly affection. Now, this word in the Greek is is a compound root word, uh, philio, that's brotherly love, adelphia, and there's a young lady here from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania this morning, but that second word means uh, adelphia in the Greek. It means out of the womb, out of the same womb. Now, why would Paul use that? Why would he say because we're out of the same womb? The idea is that you and I would would begin to live our lives knitted together, that we would see ourselves as God's children, that we're his sons and daughters. We've been adopted. We've been called out. And that's what we share. You know, I don't know if you can run at my pace. I don't know if I can run at your pace. I can't run at Nick Crawford's pace. I, I don't know some of you if, you're, if, you're, if you have kids or want kids or your kids are off or, or whatever, single, married. Some of you, I'm just learning your story. I, you know, those things are they're, they're just points of compatibility, those stages of lives, those phases that you go through, those hobbies and your ba- backgrounds and your stories. Uh, many of you come to Prologue, our new members orientation class. And some of you have said, I want to join Fondren Church. And you've written out. Your story, guess what? Your your senior pastor's reading all those stories. And some of you are surprising me with your background and just how far you've come and what God has done and what you've overcome in your life. But those are all different. What we have in common is we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, baptism, one God and Father of all. And that commonality, the commonality that you need grace and I need grace, it calls us to live together, and Paul says, would you love one another with a brotherly affection? Will Sanders, y'all know Will, he's on our staff team, standing in the back of the room, leads our college ministry, does a bunch of stuff. I love Will. He posted on Twitter a couple of days ago, he said, I just learned that otters hold hands. It changed my life. Now, it's sad, I responded, it's sad that Will just learned that, but did Do you know this, that otters, when they're sleeping, many of them at night, when they're sleeping, they'll, they'll just hold hands. Now picture, I mean, that's just, that's worth coming to church right there. Just close your eyes and picture a group of otters holding hands. You, You got your money's worth right there. A group of otters. And why are they holding hands? They don't want to drift. There's something which is utterly amazing. There's just something about it. These guys are saying intuitively, they're saying, maybe their mama taught them. I don't know. But hey, let's hold on together because we're going to enter this state of unconsciousness and we live in the midst of a large ocean and we want to keep this thing intact. So what do we do? We hold together. Beautiful, beautiful affection. There's a song on the radio. I'm going to really embarrass my kids now. But there's a song on the radio and there's a line. I didn't know what the line was saying because it's kind of whispered. And I would just say, I would just make it up around the house. And, uh, and, and then I learned, my daughter taught me, the guy saying, I got one less problem without you. I got one less problem without you. So we've been walking around the house going, I got one less problem without you. And I'll point to a different member of my family. You know, I got one less problem without you. I got one less problem without you. And it's so easy in community today to say, something's not going right. You've offended me. You've created a problem. You've added a responsibility. You've given me a weight. You've taken something from me. And you know what? I want it to end. I've got one less problem without you. And the idea Paul is saying of Christian community that if we're going to love each other with a brotherly affection, that we would hold on to each other, that we would have some odder love, and that we would be affectionate. This is tough for some of you because you don't have those homes. You don't have the background. There's an early historian who, uh, let's put that quote up, he's a a Greek guy, and he was a skilled orator of the day. A bunch of people in the age where there wasn't microphones, certainly not these kind, but there, there were no microphones, no form of amplification. People would gather in the theater to hear this guy orate what he had written. And he said this, he, was a, he scornfully rejected Christianity for so many years. He said this, if these Christians hear that any one of their number is in distress for the sake of Christ's name, they render aid in his necessity. That's when things began to change for him, to, to observe a community and to see a community that rushes to meet needs. And my prayer For us, if this is your church, is that God would develop community not based on everybody having the same story and same background or being able to run the same minute per mile pace or being at the exact same stage of life, but that we would be knitted together and that we would run to meet each other's needs because we've got enough in common in the gospel to draw together in love for each other. Paul says what next? If you have an open Bible in Romans 12, he says, Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in your spirit. Serve the Lord. Did you hear that? Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serving the Lord. Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34, uh, it's a great passage on laziness. And the writer of the Proverbs, Solomon, says, "I I walk past the field of a slugger. I walked past the vineyard of a man who lacked common sense. And I saw that weeds had grown up, that nettles had grown on the ground, that the stone wall was broken over. And I observed and I I listened and I learned from this tragedy. You see, the vineyard is supposed to be a thing of beauty. It's It's supposed to exhibit fruitfulness. It's supposed to give life. That's what a vineyard, a vineyard produces fruit and others are blessed by that fruit. So it is with your life, your soul, your character. And this writer is saying way back when, he said, I walked past it and it was just in a state of bad disrepair. It wasn't war, pestilence, famine. It wasn't fire, flood, or earthquake. It was just somebody who had neglected the vineyard. Ever been guilty? You see, this is what I feel like God was giving me this week. A couple of days ago as I was writing this, slothful and zeal, we think that laziness is just not you know, being active and busy, but I think you can be lazy while you're busy and active because laziness is not doing the thing that needs to be done when it needs to be done. Can I say that again? Laziness is not doing the thing that needs to be done when it needs to be done. And if you get what I'm saying this morning, by contrast, I'm saying that being not slothful in zeal, that being zealous is knowing what needs to be done. God, I pray that He gives me insight to be the right husband and pastor, the right father, the right friend, the right small group leader, the right, the right man that I need to be, that I would do the right things in the right way at the right time when they need to be done. My first year on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, I was fresh out of college, and I was in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I had a roommate, and this roommate was a wrestler, and he was a model. A wrestler and a model. That just didn't bode well for me that summer. That was my roommate. I just didn't stack up to this guy. And every night he would put on this suit. Most every night he'd put on this suit, this sauna suit or whatever. He would get in bed because he wanted to lose weight. I'm looking at his chiseled physique thinking, why would you want to lose a single pound? And he would, every night, every single night, would get out a deck of cards and throw them on the center of the floor in that little exercise wheel. You know, the, the thing with the rolls. You know, you work your abs, especially the lower, lower part of your abs. And he would roll that thing out. He would, turn a deck, he would turn the cards over. And whatever it said, he would roll that number. He would turn the next one over, roll that number. He'd work through the whole deck of cards every single night. He would do crunches and push-ups, working his abdominals, his pecs, his triceps, his deltoids, chiseled guy. Every single night. This model and wrestler and roommate of mine, unfortunately, was a devoted guy. I never doubted his devotion to to physical fitness, to achieving his goals. And I wonder, church, what the world thinks of us when. We talk about Christian community. And by the way, God gives it to us from the very beginning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one God. It's not polytheism. No polytheism. It's monotheism. One God, but God is in three. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. He calls Adam and Eve. He chooses a people, a nation called Israel. But then he chooses an organization called the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he, taught, he teaches us. But what does the world observe if we're called the church and we represent the church? But there's no margin in our schedule, no room in our busy lives to connect deeply with people. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And then Paul says, rounding toward home, he says what? He talks about in this passage about, about, about affliction, about the... Reality of suffering. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. And be constant in prayer. Now, the more I study the passage, I just see how those three ideas are all interwoven. Have you noticed when you go through affliction, have you noticed your thoughts on prayer changes? Have you noticed when you want something and you're not getting it or you're longing for something or there's just a really hard point of, of suffering in your life and you all, all you can think of is hope? I mean, just hope. It just, there's got to be a day. This, this suffering must end. This mistake, this, this injustice that's been inflicted on me or this hard thing that I brought on myself or just whatever it is. Some, some of you don't even know, but you're just thinking there's got to be a better day. And all you can think of is rejoice in hope. Now, here's what I want to say to you this morning. Peter said it to the early church, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeals that come your way. And some of us think, and let me just say this, if you're following Jesus and you have made a commitment to follow Jesus, it does not mean that you're holding on to Aladdin's lamp. Okay, Suffering and hard things will come your way. Some of you think it's it's sort of this... um, condensed version of the prosperity gospel. I just want to say it to some of you this morning. You think, oh, because I'm going to church, and man, I'm giving a little, the plate comes around, I I, I give online, Jesus really loves that. I give online, I'm giving some money, I'm coming to church, I, I jumped into a group, I helped out with VBS, now he owes me something. God is in my debt. You wouldn't say it out loud. Why would you say it out loud? That'd be absurd, but you're thinking about it, and God owes you something. Now, here's the part that's well, not the funny part of the sermon at all. And it's not the part maybe that would grow a large church. But the reality is we live our lives indebted to God and His grace. And I'm learning there's a lot of motivations to do things. I'm probably at times motivated by a lot of things. But only one really matters. Experiencing His grace, encountering that, and responding to it. And here's what I want to teach you this morning. There's, there's just no room for prosperity gospel, even the concise version. Like, it, it, I mean, it's just, it's so, it is so incompatible with what scripture teaches. What Jesus say of John the Baptist? Jesus said of John the Baptist, here's the greatest man ever born of a woman. How did it end for John the Baptist? How did the prosperity gospel work for him? A stripper called for his head, and his head ended up on a platter. That's how it ended. What about Moses? Faithful guy. How did it end for him? Forty years in the desert with the people that complained and griped the whole way. God took him up to a mountain, parted the clouds, said, here's the promised land. Oh, by the way, it ends here for you. Joshua's going to take the people in. Ouch. Be patient. Be patient in affliction. And sometimes all we have is hope. But the Scripture teaches that our God is a cruel God if He doesn't wound us with pain and reproof, if He doesn't make us ache and long for the world that He's really created us for. Be constant in prayer. All those interwoven. And last thing that He says, He talks about um, meeting the needs of the saints and specifically practicing hospitality to each other. That's verse 13. Meet each other's needs. Practice hospitality. Now, when I was growing up, the educational system did not care about a child's self-esteem. Any of y'all remember those days? Didn't care about, you know, if you failed a test, you know what happened? You failed the test. All right? It's crazy, young people. But if if you didn't turn in a paper on time, you got a zero. You didn't get grace and five or ten points taken off and you got to turn it in the next day. They didn't care about a child's self-esteem. And everybody could get a paddling. I got one in fifth grade every Thursday in music class. Every single Thursday. I start wearing extra pair of gym shorts and stuff. Every Thursday, I got a paddling. Uh, the, you, anybody could paddle any child back then Do you remember that they would even bring a teacher out to watch that teacher paddling just for if she'd join in sometimes hop in and get a lick in herself right i mean if you they would paddle people in school they would spank people an adult could beat a, a child in a grocery store no one would look and go well who's that evil man they'd be like what that child do man what did that child do wear them out that was that was back then And then about the time uh, that I got to junior high, something happened in the educational system. We began to care about children's self-esteem. And you couldn't couldn't lay a hand on anybody anymore. In fact, there was the advent, the beginning of the gifted and talented class. And the idea there was there are some people in this class. We've all been together, but there's some people. They're so, uh, as the name implies, they're so gifted and talented. Let's bring them out. We're them calculus. These guys, the rest of you can color, but we're going to teach these guys calculus, right? Uh, you knuckleheads will be saying you want some fries with that, and these guys are going to be invested in the company, right? Let's call them out. They're gifted and they're talented. Tough for some of us, right? And in the church, that idea creeps in. Well, he's on the stage or they're on staff or he plays the guitar or they, they lead the group or whatever. We, we tend to think there's different levels. Now, let me say there are levels, but how, we, how the rubber meets the road is different. Look at Romans 15, one on the screen. Just a, a few chapters later, Paul will say, we who are strong have an obligation. Church, this is where we're failing miserably. Let's wake up. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. There are, have you noticed, there are immature people. And more mature people. But in the church, it needs to be different. In, in the church, uh, Paul is saying that those of us who are a step ahead, we still need God's grace in our lives. And you've heard me say it before. We're all a mess. We want to preach this at Fondra Church every few months. I want to drop this on you. But we're all a mess. And you say, well, I'm not a mess. Well, you're a mess. We all were a mess. Or we are a mess. Or we're one little decision away from being a mess. And we all need God's grace. But there are levels of maturity. And you know this, Right? There are different levels of maturity. And, and Paul is saying instead of separating people, instead of just fully coming out and acting gifted and talented and maybe better and getting on a whole different track, Paul has this vision of the church that mature people would be with immature people, that we would be face to face, that we would interact with one another. And this one wouldn't think they're any more gifted or talented because Paul would teach later hey, we all have a gift. You have a gift. I don't know how, I don't know what your maturity level is. I don't know how the fruit of the Spirit is bearing out in your life, but you do have a gift. And God wants you to discover it and deploy it with. In a thing he calls the church. Well, how do we do this? I think he's saying in Romans 12 it's hospitality. It's us opening up and taking time for each other and inviting people into our lives. Some of you, and let me say this there's not a lot of people my age or older in this church, and I've said it before I'm praying for you. I pray that you'll stay. I pray that you'll invite some friends your age. I'm hearing it from 20- and 30-year-olds. I love Fondry Church, Robert Greene. I love it, but I wish we had some more of the older crowd. And my wife and Emily Hood and some other people are going to match women in mentoring. There's going to be a women's retreat in September. Melinda Gann's going to speak, and Molly and some others are going to lead worship. And They're going to match mentors, an older woman with a younger woman, the spirit of Titus too. But you know what we need? We need older women. That's what we need. And some of you are listening to the voice of the enemy. You don't realize that you're a little further down the road than some other people and you've got something to give back to somebody. And men, same thing. No difference. No difference. I could do other things on Friday morning, but I love gathering with a group of guys. Sometimes the group changes a little bit for the most part. There's six to eight of us that meet every Friday morning. And we looked this week at James 4. We said that James says in chapter 4 that enmity with God. With the world, friendship with the world's enmity with God, what does that mean? What, how do we as men live in this world? And we all talked about it around the circle. I'm telling you, it was a very rich, deep time and a meaningful time. And I pray that God would deepen that in our church. Here's what I want to say there's a card on your seat. And before you leave, if you're not connected, I'd love for you to give us your name if you're interested. Very interested, remotely interested. Give us your name, and we'd love to connect you. Here's our part. Here's our part. Our part as a church, as an elder and a pastor here, it's my job to lead a group of people who will identify, train, hold accountable, and release mature people who facilitate and engage in discipleship and spiritual growth. Your part is to make it a priority and to connect. Last night... We went out to the reservoir to Tyler and Caitlin Hendricks' home to celebrate the adoption of Jefferson Joseph Grantham to Jonathan and Jenny. We did what Paul says in verse 15, I believe it is, of Romans 12. We rejoiced with those who were rejoicing. Tonight, uh, we go to Nathan and Candace Smith's home to say goodbye to John and Michelle Aiken. And we'll weep a little bit. Because six years ago, roughly, John and Michelle Aiken and Tyler and Caitlin and Nathan and Candace and Matt and Lauren Thornton, we we gathered and we said, hey, we're all busy, but we're going to circle up on Sunday nights and share life together. And man, we're all glad that we did. And they've all been a huge part of this church. They give, they sacrifice, they include others. And a lot of you know them, and a lot of you know what I'm talking about. John's been the basketball coach at Bellhaven. I guess this means I don't have to go to Bellhaven basketball games anymore and sit courtside and yell really bad things that a pastor should never say at the opposing team. I'm free of that now. Jesus and John have set me free. But John and Michelle moved to Tennessee. I'm so glad that they've been a part of our lives, and they will continue to. There's going to be distance. But we're living out what the Scripture says. And I'm not better than any of you. But I'm just saying to you, and preachers can do this from time to time, I'm about as busy as anybody in this room. I think of my dear friend Scott and Paige McLeod, professional doctor, homemaker, busy, multiple kids, different schools, lots of activities. But they could stand up here now and anytime you'd want them to, and they would tell you they're so glad that when Fondren Church started, they opened up their home on Wednesday night, and these young couples came to their house, and their lives are fuller and richer for it. And so are some of your lives because of that. We're all busy. And here's what I want to say. The biblical idea of a church is not somewhere you go to. It's a covenant community that you belong to. And I'm saying to you, not wanting to pile any guilt. If this is a place where it's safe for you to come in every so often, once a month or whatever, you know you're welcome here. You're welcome. We want to leave a challenge, and it's a perfect time of year to do it, to think about being involved in a deeper level with a group of people. You may be scared. You may be timid about something. Maybe they may call on you. You may have to share something. It'll be safe. It can be good. We're releasing some leaders that we love and trust that might be just one step further than you but still dependent on God's grace. Uh, several months ago in the preschool, a young couple uh, finishing up dental school about to move to Birmingham needed a place to live. They were going to be out of their house in Fondren where they were renting and they were going to need a place to live before they moved to Birmingham. They had several months. And another family, th- these these uh, these couples were serving in our preschool and one of them said to the other, a big home, this one family, uh, a big home in the reservoir, we could all go live with them probably. He's, a, he, he's an oral surgeon. He said to, to this couple, he said, y'all come stay with us. Come live with us. And for... A couple of months, this young couple, this young dentist, lived with this uh, older dentist and his family out in the reservoir. And they said, Robert, it was such a godsend. You know who I think it meant more to? I think it meant more to the couple that was hosting. Hospitality and the couple who stayed there because for them they were given back they've been married many years they're raising several children they know the pressure of providing and leading a family in today's world and they were just given back to this young couple just given back to them how cool is that having dinner together many nights sharing life outside on the deck just all kind of wonderful things sharing life together be devoted to one another brotherly affection don't be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit Serving the Lord. Practice hospitality. Meet needs. Don't be fake and hypocritical with your love. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Man, that fires me up. And I pray against just the disparity between how we're living and how we view the church and what Jesus intends for us. Pray with me. Lord, create safe safety in our midst. And Lord, for every heart and mind in the room that wants to move toward community that's a little more biblical than they've ever experienced, Lord, I pray for a safe place and some, some friends. Lord, I pray that we would be safe but not soft. That we would realize there's a place to to provoke one another to love and to good deeds, that you call us out of timidity and into a bold, brave, adventurous experience of walking with Jesus. You're the God of yes, and all that you promise, it finds their yes in Him, in you, our Lord. And Lord, as we move toward a, a getting back into the worship center, reveling in a permanent home and considering all that you want to do in our lives, Lord, uh, there's some people that are scared of a church that's growing. And, and Lord, uh, Lord there's, uh, the reality of your word is that when we love one another, when we preach the gospel, that people will be drawn to it, that it will bear fruit and increase. And Lord, I pray you give us wisdom that we would find friends that we wouldn't sit in rows and expect one man or one pastor or one leader to rejoice with everybody that's rejoicing and to weep with everybody that's weeping, but that you would, you would add to our number of men and women, singles and married, young and old, who would step out and facilitate a group and, and be hospitable and share life together. God, I pray you convict us where we need to be convicted. For us, so many of us, a good number of us churches, somewhere you go. But your definition is it's a covenant community that we belong to. And I pray that we would share stories, more and better stories, of people that are really taking time out and sharing needs and sharing life. Build that in us. In Jesus we pray.